1: The Florida panther may be our official state animal, but the big cat has been perilously close to extinction in the not-too-distant past and has hung on by the skin of its razor-sharp teeth. Craig Pittman is a Tampa Bay Times environmental reporter and author who has spent decades closely following the fight to save the only known breeding population of puma east of the Mississippi. His new book is Cattail, the Wild Weird Battle to Save the Florida Panther. Craig Pittman welcome to Florida Matters. Thank you. This book is not a zoological study about the Florida panther. What you did was you focus on the people involved Mm -hmm. in in this uh, battle this conservation battle. So tell me how you structured the book.
0: It's not like my last book Oh Florida which each chapter was a different subject about Florida you know. Weird history. Well, what it's like to grow up in Florida, Mm -hmm. gambling in Florida, driving in Florida, and no, those were not the same chapter. This is more of a straight ahead history book in a way because it starts off with a prologue talking about a particular panther who I identify as the most important panther in Florida history because of what happened when it died. And then sort of rewinds back to talk about how the Native Americans regarded the panther. They called it the cat of God and how the settlers feared it and uh, then how it wound up on the endangered species list, how Florida schoolchildren voted it to be our state animal, and then how it very nearly went extinct in the 1990s. And there was a desperate last ditch experiment to try and bring them back. And then sort of the ramifications of that.
1: And you do focus on individual characters. Yes. That we can kind of get to know. And you see that the panther's fate was left to a handful of really important people. Yeah.
0: yeah. who Most people don't know their names today. Mm-hmm. They have no idea who these folks are that fought this battle to try and save the state animal. And so I was trying to kind of correct that and also uh, point out that one of the sort of themes in the book is the whole women in STEM thing, that a lot of the heroes of the story are women who are trying to get their male superiors or male colleagues to listen to them, and it was really hard to get them to pay attention.
1: The veterinarians yes. in this case. yes. I wanted to start out talking about Roy McBride.
0: He's a great was, character.
1: That's who you started the book out with. Yeah. <laughs> and honestly, I would have read a whole book about Roy McBride. <laughs> and you say, it was funny because you say if if this story sounds familiar, it's because Cormac McCarthy wrote a book called The Crossing, which had to do with some Has, of Roy McBride's yes, yeah. Uh, his, his
0: One of his most famous piece. exploits out West was his long period of trying to trap a particularly damaging, I guess you'd say a uh, wolf that was uh, wreaking havoc on ranches all over Mexico. And he spent months and months and months tracking it and finally was able to capture it. And that became the basis of the book. But I mean, Roy's done so many other things. Some of them very controversial. I mentioned in the book, he invented a, a collar for the sheep that he was supposed to be protecting that had poison in it. So if a wolf attacked, The flock, it would kill one sheep, but then it would get poisoned. And there are a lot of animal welfare folks who don't like that. So Roy has a sort of complicated background, I guess you'd say. But once he was called in on the Panther issue, he was fully committed to the panther and to studying it and saving it. And every time there's an important turn in the story, Roy pops up. He's sort of like Zelig in that way. And the thing is, most of that's not known because Roy does not like to talk about himself. I had a really hard time getting— Is he getting... still living? Yes. He's in his 80s, and he's training his grandson to replace him, his grandson whose name is Cougar. Big mm-hmm. <laughs> Oh, And when, <laughs> you know, when I kind of raised my eyebrow at that, Roy said, no, I didn't name him. Um, <laughs> I finally got him to talk to me by saying, look, it's not that I want to make you into a— You know this big, larger-than-life character. Anything it's that you were there. You're a witness, and if you can't tell me what you saw and what you heard and what you did, then I'm not going to be able to tell people the whole story of what happened. That's how he agreed to. to So that was a coup
1: because I think you really do make it clear in the book that Roy McBride was a man of very few words. He grew up in the wilds, the barrens of West Texas, where that movie.
0: No No country, no country for old men. That's it.
1: I think that's it. And I remember I've driven through it, Mm -hmm. and you just go for hours, and there's nothing. Yeah. And that's where he's from. And he he said that was was, perfect mountain lion country.
0: Right, exactly. And when he was growing up there, the future consisted of either you tended sheep, you hunted the predators who hunted the sheep, or you left town. <laughs> so right. he became a hunter and sort of a legendary uh, hunter out west. Tracker. A uh, tracker. Yeah. He's mastering this you know, 19th century skill in the 20th century. And it turned out to be an absolutely essential skill for saving panthers.
1: Did he move to Florida?
0: Basically, he's got a trailer at the end of a dirt road down in the Echope area that he stays in part time. But his base is still Texas. I think okay. his family is still based there, too. So,
1: And one thing that you made clear, because you talk a lot about the tracking team, the team that started in the 70s, I think? And 80s, they, early 80s. In the 80s. Yeah. And this was when we really knew nothing. We didn't even know if panthers existed in florida right right. roy mcbride thought they didn't
0: well when the endangered species act passed in 1973 which was by the way co-written by a florida man a guy named nat reed the panther was on the original endangered species list and a lot of florida game officials uh, said well why are you putting that on there they're extinct we don't have any more because there weren't
1: any in louisiana or alabama
0: no they they had gone extinct in all the other states east of the mississippi and so uh, the World Wildlife Fund thought maybe there were still panthers here. So they hired Roy and sent him out with a young college grad student named Ron Nowak to try and find out if there were any panthers left. And Roy found one, just one, sort of a scrawny old female. Uh, and he found signs of others, not too many, but he found signs that there were, you know, there was still a population here. So that marked the start of people realizing, hey, we have to do something about this. And so then a guy named Peter Pritchard with the Audubon Society convened a meeting of all the supposed Panther experts, although really only two people there had actually seen any pumas at all. One was Roy and another was this Frenchman named Robert Boddy, who I always picture talking like the narrator on the SpongeBob cartoons because <laughs> he had such a thick French accent. And out of that meeting, they picked this one guy named Chris Belden, this very slow talking, very thoughtful biologist to head up the state's panther recovery program. And he'd never seen a panther before, didn't really know anything about him, but started gathering up material on him and, and finding out what he could and asking people to write to him with their any sightings they had or anything like that. And his quest became big news. And so every time there'd be a story about Chris Belden looking for panther information, there'd be a picture of this sleek, beautiful animal, this great apex predator with his lovely pelt. And people just kind of fell in love with this vision of the panther and with his quest to find them. And so that's why in, I think it was 81, when the state's schoolchildren voted on what should be the state animal, uh, you know, there were the ballot listed alligators and dolphins and things like that. And there were a few write-in votes for monkeys, which always cracks me up. But they voted for the panther overwhelmingly. It got way more votes than manatees or key deer or anything else.
1: We didn't know if there was even just a handful of no. Panthers in the state at that point. No, we had no They'd idea seen how many were
0: there were or even where they really lived. And so 81 was also the first year that Belden organized this capture team. He hired Roy McBride to come back from Texas and go out with his dogs and help him track down Panthers and put radio collars on them so they could track where they went what, you know, what habitat they liked, that kind of thing.
1: So they were just trying to find out these very basic things about Florida panthers yeah. just less than a generation ago, just 50 years ago. Yeah,
0: exactly. 40 exactly. years ago. And I mean, you know. So the, it hasn't been that long. No, it hasn't been that long at all. And I think people forget that. They forget that, you know, panthers were a complete mystery to us up until the 1980s. And then by the 90s, they were nearly gone. So we almost lost our state of animal.
1: So he really was a success of publicity at that point. Yeah. To get the school children on board and the mm-hmm. people on board. And they, he fired up, this is Chris Belden, he fired up people's imagination yeah, somehow. Yeah, he,
0: he really did. I mean, he made panthers into this sort of cool thing. Uh, of course, he was bombarded with reports about false sightings. Uh, you know, he'd go out to check them out and discover it was, you know, a really big dog. <laughs> or Possum <Right. a, laughs> or, awesome or, or something. Or somebody, yeah, or, it's, or at one point it was actually a, uh, I think he said it was like a, a bulldog that had died, and the body had swollen up, and that's what they saw. So, But fortunately, Roy had trained him how to look for the tracks, how to look for other markers of panther presence. And so he was able to say, okay. Finally, by sorting through all these alleged sightings, he was able to say, okay, panthers definitely live in Big Cypress National Preserve. They live in the Fakahatchee Strand State Park. They live in that area and they don't really live anywhere else in Florida.
1: So this is down south then, sort of of west of Miami?
0: A little south of Fort Myers and uh, west of Miami. And uh, there were some in Everglades National Park also, uh, not too many, just a few. But when the state first started out, they weren't allowed into Everglades National Park to search for for panthers there. I think the superintendent was afraid that letting people running around with dogs and, and uh, tranquilizer dart guns would uh, be bad for the national park.
1: Well, this was a disaster. You pointed out this panther that you said was the most important yeah, one. Yeah, FP3. You would say, FP3, mm-hmm. that Florida Panther 3 it stands for. Yes. And this is the one that's up in Tallahassee stuffed in the Museum yes. of Natural History. And tell the story of how that panther died, because it really is kind of crucial to this
0: whole story. It really is. If you want to see the most important panther in Florida history, you have to go to Tallahassee, of all places, and go to the state archives that's in the R.A. Gray building. Down on the first floor, there's the Museum of Florida History. But if you go up, I think it's the second or third floor, there's the state archives. And there's this glass case that has a panther in it, and that's FP3. Belden and his capture team had been going out for two years and successfully capturing panthers. Not a lot of them, but a few. And then they realized, one of them, that they had previously captured, Florida Panther number 3. There was a problem with the batteries in its radio collar. And so they needed to catch it, replace the batteries, and then turn it loose again. And so they chased it down uh, with Roy McBride's dogs. And then one member of the capture team climbed up partway in the tree where the Panther had sought refuge, shot it with a tranquilizer dart. And the way it hit and the dosage it delivered was wrong, and the Panther— fell out of the tree, dead, and two members of the capture team, one of them a woman named Deborah Jansen, actually tried to give the dying panther mouth-to-mouth resuscitation uh, to bring it back, which that's a level of commitment to the job you seldom see in America these but days. But it
1: was a catastrophe. It was. Because it really was. if there were only six panthers, I mean, for all they knew, that's mm-hmm. all there were. Yeah. And they just killed one. Yeah, exactly. And it was a female. It one. was
0: a female, too, and which made it even worse. And so Belden said that, you know, he carried the carcass out of the swamp on his back, feeling like he was carrying the burden of having driven the entire subspecies into extinction. And it led to this tremendous crisis, not just for the Panther program, but for him personally. He went into a deep depression, his marriage nearly unraveled, he ended up taking a religious turn to his life and accepting Jesus as his Savior, and that sort of gave him the equanimity to go on. But in the meantime, he was replaced as Panther capture team leader. People like Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, of all folks, were calling for an end to the Panther science program, saying, don't chase them down and put collars on them, let them die in peace, let them go ahead and go extinct and don't bother them it was quite a thing and even several years later people were still writing letters to the editor of their newspaper saying why are we still allowing these crazy scientists to chase panthers around with dogs Um, It
1: does sound terrible. You're taking these wild animals, you're putting collars on them. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas hated the whole idea of even putting a collar on it. Because her cats hated collars.
0: Because her cats, her house cats hated (laughs) collars. Because her house cats, yeah. (laughs) So she was an expert. Yes. (laughs) 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 But I mean, it was an accepted scientific technique that had been used out west very successfully. Of course, they had a lot more mountain lions out there than we had panthers here. So but if they, they knew if you no other to, way to no. learn no. This is, about this animal yeah, exactly. to try to save it. They didn't have GoPro cameras back then. Right. <laughs> it's just that the radio collars are the best they had. So finally, uh, they brought on a new capture team leader. He stayed for a couple of years, made some innovative changes in the program, and then he left, and they brought in a guy named Dave Mayer who worked really, really hard to polish the image of the panther science program. He went out and wrote scientific articles. He spoke to civic groups. He invited various reporters and politicians to go along on capture team trips, and he sort of restored their image. The reason FP3 was so important is because as a result, the game commission, as it was then known, decided they needed to send a veterinarian out along with the capture team. So there'd be somebody watching for The condition of the panther during the capture, and then to supervise the taking of various samples. And so they picked this woman named Melody Relke, a veterinarian who originally was from California, and had some background working with cheetahs. So she had some knowledge of dealing with big cats. And she came in, and as a result of the death of FP3, and immediately spotted that there were genetic problems with the panthers. And And that 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 was huge. That was huge. And she had a really hard time convincing anyone else that she was right, but she knew she was right, and eventually she was able to convince people, we need to deal with this because this is going to limit our ability to save them if they can't reproduce, and that was the sort of the condition they were in.
1: And that was sort of mid-'80s, early-'80s? Late-'80s. Late-'80s. Late-'80s, yeah. Because late 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 yeah. yeah. I was thinking. Because
0: FP3 died in 83, and then Mayor came on around 85, mm-hmm. and that was the same year she started.
1: I had a friend out in California who worked in a big cat rescue organization, mm-hmm. and I remember speaking to her about the Florida Panther And she said she thought they were doomed because of the inbreeding Mm -hmm. and the genetics were so messed up at that point. It just really didn't seem like that was in the early 90s that I would have been speaking to her. That it seemed like there was no hope for them, sadly.
0: Yeah. And some developers sort of took advantage of that. They said, well, look, panthers are just about extinct. How about we just go ahead and build in panther habitat? And that persuaded a lot of government folks to say yes to development in panther habitat.
1: In the 90s, that way. Yeah.
0: Yeah. In the 90s.
1: I'm Robin Sessingham. You're listening to Florida Matters, and we're talking to Craig Pittman, the reporter for the Tampa Bay Times and author of many books, including his newest, Cattail, The Wild, Weird Battle to Save the Florida Panther. So, Craig, you called this the wild, weird battle to save the Florida panther. Where's the weird come in?
0: It's in a lot of places. At one point, Florida's version of Bigfoot, the skunk ape, actually shows up. There's a little cameo in there. (laughs) Some action takes place at the place that calls itself the Skunk Ape Research Headquarters down in Ochopi. It's actually a gift shop. I mentioned that the Florida panther National Wildlife Refuge, which the federal government bought and created this refuge for panthers, because they didn't want to build anything on the site, they didn't want human presence there. The headquarters for that is actually in a Comfort Inn on I seventy five. So, so the joke is, you know, maybe the maybe the Panthers get turned down service there and a, a little mint on their pillow.
1: Before we took a break, Craig, you were talking about Dave Mayer. And this is somebody you made clear he did a lot of good work to burnish the image of the panther recovery program. It Mm -hmm. had taken a bad turn with the death of that one panther. And he really worked hard to publish a lot of scientific articles and to get the good work they were doing out there. Mm -hmm. But he was also a controversial Character in your book,
0: yeah, very controversial. He was absolutely sure that he knew what he was doing, and nobody else did. And there are divided opinions about him. People who had been on the capture team before found him to be really irritating. That he knew best, and he didn't bother asking them any questions or anything like that. People he hired to join them on the capture team loved the guy, still loved the guy. Uh, he had a very charismatic personality, attracted a lot of people to be very loyal to him. But I dug into his personnel records and scientific papers and interviewed everybody I could find. And the fact was, he was sort of tampering with the data so it would match the theories that he was coming up with. And he repeatedly clashed with his superiors. And finally, he was forced out because he was doing things that they had specifically told him not to do. I mean, at one point, he had been told, you have to stop trespassing on federal property at Big Cypress Preserve. You need to let them know that you're, you're coming when you're going to go there. And he'd Refused to do that. And so finally, they tell him, We're spending you and you're not going to be leader of the capture team anymore. And so he resigned. And then two weeks later, he turned up working for developers.
1: That was incredible. So yeah. he totally flipped sides. Really. He did. He did. And you mentioned that I think this was before he lost his job working on the Panther recovery mm-hmm. program, but he had this idea that Panthers only needed forested land to yeah. live in. That was a s-
0: scientific paper he wrote. Uh, and it went to a big journal it did and it went it became the most influential panther science paper of all time but he had tossed out 40 percent of the data from the radio collar program because that didn't match his theory that's terrible and they didn't disclose that in the paper and there were some other problems as well and i talked to his co-author on the paper who said i complained but dave said hey who's the panther expert you or me and Right, so, because
1: his partner, I think, was a bird expert. He was
0: a bird expert, but, but he, he knew about GIS, and yeah. that's why he was a co-author he on this paper. He knew about
1: mapping. Yeah, yeah, exactly,
0: exactly. So he saw all the problems, but whenever he raised objections, Dave Mayer said, well, listen, I know what I'm doing, just do what I tell you to.
1: This had wide-ranging effects because then developers could say to the you know government, look, mm-hmm. this paper backs this up. We can develop right. all this land because it's not Panther land. Right. However, even though there might be panther tracks on it, they'd
0: say, well, that's not panther habitat. And it's kind of ironic. The first development he showed up working on was a development actually called the habitat.
1: Why do you think he did that?
0: (laughs) You know, I I sort of speculate some in the book, but I mean, you know, he needed a job. He had a family to support. He wanted to get his PhD. So he, he was working on that and obviously needed some money to pay for his continued schooling. But the interesting thing to me is even after he got the PhD and he got a job as a professor at the University of Kentucky, he was still doing work for developers. There are public records that show he took $60,000 from Lee County to help them get a permit to extend a highway through Panther Habitat and to persuade the Fish and Wildlife Service to take his version of what habitat was Panther Habitat versus its own staff biologist who was saying that's going to wreck a whole bunch of panther habitat and Dave's argument was no it's not and they went with his argument and overruled their own staff biologist
1: so egos were in play here it yes. sounds like you know it's it's just incredible because looking back over the years and you think science is a very dry subject and everything's done factually but these human egos come oh, into yeah. play and they make a huge difference
0: absolutely well and i mean the the and the Fights were incredible over this stuff. Other panther biologists saw the flaws in Dave Mayer's paper, but they were ignored because he was a PhD and they were not. And so ultimately sort of led to this very rare event, I don't know of another thing like it in Florida at least, where the state brought in four experts on pumas from other states and asked them, without telling them what was going on, said, please review all of the panther scientific papers that have been published. And so the science review team, as it was called, sat down and read through everything and then said this paper that Dave Mayer put out and all the papers after it that are relying on that are based on bad science. Wow. And and you need to stop using those.
1: Let's skip ahead. Okay. Um, So because Panthers got down to a very, very small population and a lot of it— 20 to
0: 30 max uh, in 1995.
1: But— they have made a comeback. In summary, I think what they discovered was that veterinarian, Rilke, yes. was correct. Yes. And, I mean, of course the problem was habitat, which is what Dave Mayer always right. stressed, that's the long.
0: That's the long-term problem. And in the, the, the short-term, the problem was the genetic defects that were preventing them from even breeding or living a complete life. Some of them had holes in their hearts. Mm. Uh, she described one kitten as having a heart that sounded like a washing machine because it was so messed up. And so they initially tried captive breeding because that's sort of recognized as the last-ditch effort for saving an endangered species. And they went out and caught several kittens and discovered the kittens had the same genetic defects as the adults, which meant that they wouldn't be able to successfully breed and fix the overarching problem. So they had this big meeting up in North Florida at this place called White Oak Plantation, and everybody was kind of down in the dumps, like, oh, my God, you know, we've we've blown it. We've, we're going to lose the panther. What can we do? And finally, uh, someone, and unfortunately, the, who came up with it first is lost to history. It might have been Melody Roke, It might have been somebody else, a guy named Ulysses Seal. But they said, well, what if we bring in some mountain lions from somewhere else and let them breed with the native panthers? And that would fix up the genetic pool. And... There were lots of questions about, A, whether it would work, because nobody ever tried this before, and, B, the legality of it, because the Endangered Species Act doesn't cover hybrids. But the logic here was that before humans arrived in North America, that the habitat of the Florida panther covered the whole south, and they probably bred with cougars from Texas at that point. So the theory was, well, okay, if they bred with them before, maybe it's okay for them to breed with them again, in a very limited way. So they hired Roy McBride, once again, showing up in the story at a key yeah. moment, and said, go to te- go back to Texas and catch us some female mountain lions that you can turn loose in Florida, in the Everglades, in the Big Cypress. And Roy had never told this story before about how he went about catching the cougars. And to me, it's the absolute high point of the book. It's it's really funny. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is a very, very dire, depressing situation, but Roy had some interesting adventures in catching the the cougars, and he hadn't told the story before. And so he finally winds up with eight healthy female cougars and brings them back to Florida, and they turn them loose uh, out in the swamps, you know, two here, two there. And to everyone's surprise and shock, it works.
1: The rest is history. Yeah. Wait, and, wait.
0: and so we now, as a result, we now have about 200, 230 panthers roaming around out in the swampy wilderness. So that's a tenfold increase from what we had in 1995, so... That's such good news. I've wanted to write this book for 20 years, but it didn't have a good ending, and that sort of gave me that hopeful ending that I needed.
1: Well, speaking of which, I would love for you to read that ending because just a couple of years ago, some of Carlton Ward's cameras, I believe, captured kittens. Yeah. And this was north of the Caloosahatchee...
0: North of the Caloosahatchee River, right.
1: Which was... Incredible, A, because there were kittens, so they're breeding, and B, because this was further north than they'd ever seen them. Yeah. So that was extremely important. And you wrote about that at the very end, and if you could read that.
0: I'm writing about this camera trap picture of these kittens and saying that, you know, these kittens, maybe they'll be the ones to go on and repopulate Florida with more panthers than it's ever had before. And, and how uh,
1: hard the road is going to be Yes, yeah, I made,
0: made sure that was clear, but I said if that happens, then there's a good chance of them repopulating the southeast. And, I, and then I wrote, that, of course, would make them the most important panthers in Florida history, not FP3. It would mean all of the hard work and personal sacrifices by Chris Belden, Roy McBride, Melody Relke, and I list several other people, and the rest has at last paid off. As I sit here staring at the photo of Babs's kitten, Babs's babies, because Babs was the name of the mother, I know that what I am seeing is probably just a pair of scared kittens uh, scampering for the woods because the camera startled them. But the more I look at it, the more I read into it, I see them leaping into the future, vaulting obstacles, racing to make their place in the wide world. They get taller, longer, faster, sleeker. Their teeth get sharper, and their hunger grows. They're chasing prey and finding mates of their own. They're having kittens, just like the two in this photo. Here's hoping that Babs's kittens will keep on pressing on, keep finding new habitat that can accommodate their growing numbers, and that never again does one end up as a cat under glass.
1: Hopeful ending, but it's going to be a hard road. And you yes. mentioned that they're going to need habitat. You also talked about Carlton Ward and Joe Guthrie of yes. the Florida Wildlife Quarter Expedition. Um, we've interviewed them on Florida mm-hmm. Matters, and our reporter, Steve Newborn, has spent a lot of time with them out in the yeah. field so that is going to be really important to Absolutely. have a wildlife quarter stretching from one end of Florida to mm-hmm. another.
0: And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that Joe Guthrie was one of Dave Mayer's students. and
1: A fan of his.
0: Yes, and took to heart his lessons about the importance of habitat for these wide-ranging animals. So not all of Dave's legacy is a bad legacy. Some no, of it is a very good complicated. legacy. Complicated. As it's,
1: is Roy McBride, yeah, as are they're all, all these people. They're
0: all very complicated characters. I mean, Roy McBride Big fan of Rush Limbaugh, doesn't really like the Endangered Species Act, didn't think the um, genetic augmentation project would work either. So, I mean, they're, you know not everybody is wholly a, a villain or a hero. Roy wears a white hat, but just because it keeps his face out of the sun, <laughs> let's put it that way. <laughs> the Wildlife Quarter folks, there are actually characters in the book as well in the last chapter. Carlton's camera traps record spotting different things, and he and Joe Guthrie come up with the idea for the for their expedition. And um, I
1: would encourage people to follow Carlton Ward's Instagram account. Yes. And he's you will some amazing see some pictures. amazing pictures of he's, Florida Panthers. I don't know if
0: he's mentioned it. He's doing a project for National Geographic. I think it's supposed to come out next year called Path of the Panther, where he tries to show the Florida landscape from the Panthers' point of view, which should be pretty amazing.
1: That's it for today's show. You can listen to Florida Matters whenever it's convenient for you as a podcast. Search for it and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Florida Matters is a production of WUSF Public Media. The show was produced by Steve Newborn. I'm Robin Sessingham. Thanks for listening.